Now, I had picked this topic several weeks ago, not knowing we'd be doing communion today, so it's really a, an amazing dovetail. As you'll see, the passage goes right along and will prepare us for communion very well. In your bulletin, you'll find uh, the passage, one of the passages on, on one side and some notes with some blanks. You can make some notes for those of you that like to do that. Uh, a little brief thing I need to do, know um, about tonight's service. I need a little show of hands of people that may be going because they need to know how many desserts to have for us. So, okay, good enough, thank you. Part of tonight, we'll be introducing Nick to Grace Community Church and praying with him as he steps out in ministry here with Sarah. So I'm really looking forward to that tonight. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great evening if you can make it. I want to open first to our passage in John chapter 13. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. But before I do, let me ask the Lord to bless our time now. Father, we know that you are with us. We know that you desire the best for us, and we know, Father, that your word is the best place to find that good, and we pray that we'd be able to mine those truths out of here today by your spirit, that you'd open our hearts to your work, and you'd help us to see the kingdom of God in all its glory again, and the kingdom of God through Christ and through service. We just ask you to be here now, Lord. Amen. John 13, verse 1. <clears throat> Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, What am I doing? What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. So this is not to announce that we're going to have foot washing after communion today. <laughs> Praise the Lord, someone said. Yeah. There, are, there are groups to do it, and actually I was raised doing that. Um, and I'm going to make a little detour there a bit later. Um, but what I want to talk about today in humility and service has uh, obviously the underpinnings of the gospel in there, as everything that we do does. But I want to delve deeply into this passage because there's a lot in here that a lot of Christians don't understand about um, how the Old Testament links together with the New Testament, how the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of Christ. And this passage exposes all of that for us and brings together everything that God had been doing in human history up to this very night. The last night Jesus was with his disciples and when he demonstrated for them what true humility and service was, it was really lost on them, frankly, because they all denied him just a few hours later. 
But nevertheless, what I want to look at is I want to back up a little bit, and I want to look a little bit about the context of this passage. And um, so we're going to work through that today to refresh our understanding um, because the power of the gospel comes through understanding the Bible as a whole. You can understand who Christ is coming to die for our sins, and we can become a Christian if we just read the New Testament, most certainly. But the richness and depth of how God has worked in humanity is only seen by going back and reaching back into the Old Testament and seeing how it all comes together. So I want you to go actually to Luke 22 that helps some of the context of what I'm talking about. If you remember, the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they often have little differences that they write about the same events that happened. And this is what's happening. Luke was there, but he emphasizes different things. And so as we look at the Gospels, we always have to be careful as we're looking at a passage like the one in John, that we look at the one, if there is one that correlates, so that we can get the full richness of it and we can understand a little better. Because in John, we don't really get the context. And context is very important as we uh, dive into Scripture. As we look at chapter 22 of Luke, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread. Now what did John chapter 13 say? What was it? Feast of Passover, the term was used. But here it says Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So the feast, it was the same feast, drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now we know this was at the end where they were desiring to kill Jesus. And what was happening in Jerusalem at the time was in the temple, um, they were having the feast of unleavened bread slash celebrating the Passover as the Jews did at that time based upon history that we're going to look at this morning that helps set the plate for everything that Jesus came and he did. So Jesus last hour was preparing for him to die on the cross at the same time the Jews were celebrating the death of lambs for uh, slain lambs for redemption of sin in the temple. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So in the middle of this community event to celebrate the Passover, the scribes and the Pharisees had talked Judas into betraying Jesus, who they considered their enemy as a false Messiah, and wanted to kill him. And of course, God is working all this time. So here's Jesus. He's sitting in the upper room with the disciples during Passover, getting ready to wash their feet, and Judas is sitting right there, having already made this deal with 
the scribes and Pharisees to betray Jesus. And Jesus, of course, knows this. If you read a little bit further down, Jesus talks about, you know, I know the one who's going to betray me sits here with us. So this is a pretty dynamic situation. So we have the feast going on. Judas had a plan. And let's jump down to verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus knew then exactly what was going to happen while he's having the Passover celebration and what we call communion and foot washing on this night. He knew that two things. He knew what the plan was and he knew that his hour had come. And so he's with his disciples and the, as a man, you can imagine how he felt. He knew his death was coming very soon. And yet as God, it was difficult to explain this to the disciples. Here they are. We can look down, um, uh, down further in the chapter, starting with verse 24. After Jesus is talking about this profound thing that's going to happen, they start arguing over who's greatest in the kingdom. And a couple hours later, they all deny him. So it's really quite a disastrous situation for them. But we're looking at Christ in his love because it says he loved them to the end. So we're looking, I want to look at these loving acts of Jesus uh, through the template of foot washing. So I hope that kind of makes sense uh, with what we're trying to do here. So what I want to do is I want to put some slides up. Uh, PowerPoint slides and now these are kind of corny kid coloring book kind of pictures okay so I get that but what I want to do is I want to back up okay and I want to um, looks like I got them a little bit out of order here but what I want to do is go back in the Old Testament and pull some of this information forward so you have to go to Exodus chapter 12. I'll read a few verses in there. Because we're talking about the Passover. We're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What does that even mean? We're a long way away from when these were instituted in the Old Testament. And you have to remember that Israel as a nation went over 400 years not being in existence. Remember? what we call the silent years between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the Passover rite was continued wherever some Jews were at. And so it's practice when Israel was, um, had risen up as a nation under Roman rule, they were free to practice. And that's when uh, Herod's temple was built. And that is what you've heard of the Western Wall in Jerusalem, where they go and pray, the western wall is part of the remnant from that temple. All right? Does that make sense? So that's why the Jews revere the western wall, because it's part of the, the temple. They don't see Christ as the Messiah, and so they're still living back 
in this time of Christ, which really goes clear back to the time of Exodus. So in Exodus 12, and most of you know this, but it's good to remember that when we think about communion and Passover. Verse 11 to 15. And I'm trying to avoid a lot of the passages that, are, that, that give even more context to focus on what's most important. Exodus 12, verse 11. God is uh, giving Moses instruction about um, the Passover that's being instituted. He's telling them how to do it. Verse 11, In this manner you shall eat it, your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will excuse, execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So, remembering that the context is the Israelites are still slaves in Egypt. The plagues have happened. Egypt has still not relented. So, God is going to take the firstborn child. He gives Moses the plan to allow the Hebrews, the Israelites to be free from that judgment by taking blood, by eating unleavened bread, and taking blood and painting it on the doorposts and the lintel of the door. And that's what this picture is representing for you, a little visual. So that the death angel will pass over that house and not kill the firstborn of the Hebrews. And he tells Moses to make it a memorial throughout all eternity. And the, this is where the unleavened bread comes from. Some churches, when they have communion, they actually use unleavened bread to signify some fidelity uh, with this idea of unleavened bread and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is when it all started. But then it goes forward. Go ahead and uh, show me the next slide. I guess I can do that, can't I? There we go. So what's this, kids? You know what this is? Right? Does it look familiar? It's the tabernacle. Very good. The tabernacle is where? It's as Israel is roaming around the desert for 40 years. Um, you can read um, in Exodus. We're going to go to chapter 30. We all know God gave them instructions to set up this tabernacle a place to worship. And as they moved, they tore it down, carried it, set it back up. And I'm going to talk about some of the details of this. But I wanted to point out that part of the tabernacle that's really interesting that you see in, in chapter 30, verse 17, is the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. 
And that's what this is right here. This bronze, it's sometimes referred to as the laver. And as they entered into the tabernacle, there was a sacrifice here, and then the Levites would wash before they would go into the holy place, whoever was assigned to that. But there was washing, and that's kind of the point I'm making, is that there's this symbolism of washing, um, and it's a symbol of wash, the washing away of sin, because remember at that time there was no forgiveness of sin through Christ. It was through making a ritual sacrifice on the altar, and there were actually lots of sacrifices going on all year long, but the main event of the year was the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. But outside was this basin to wash in. And if you know anything about um, Islam, Islam is really big on washing. I think this is a typical thing where um, practices of Christianity or Judaism is, are copied, really, and I believe that's one of them. And that's why before they have prayers, um, it's called ablution, I think. They wash their hands and their feet. And I've seen a number of times in my travels that uh, devout Muslims washing their feet in a bathroom sink. It's common. And you're like, well, we don't do that here. Well, they do because to them washing is extremely important. When we, as a Sunday school group, one time visited the mosque up in Toledo. How's that for a Sunday school activity? Uh, we got to go in and see the men and the women split, and they both have these large washing areas. So in that, uh, in that religious belief, it's been co-opted, I believe, from Judaism. But that idea is there, and it's reflected clear down into the New Testament when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples because of the symbolism that we'll get to eventually, if you'll bear with me. But this, this uh, feast and Passover and all of this goes clear back to the time of the Exodus, it's carried forward as the Israelites are wandering around for 40 years. And this is a, you know, a rendition to give us a mental picture of what's going on. So I just put another picture here to kind of a ground view, what it could have looked like. And someday maybe we'll, we'll do some stuff on the dress of the Levites and the breastplate and all this symbolic stuff because when you really dig into it, there's so much symbolism and there's so much forward-looking about the gospel and who God is and how he works in what seems to be a very archaic kind of a religious ritual. But it's not. It's really not. What is, what is the main feature of this ritual system? What's the main event? The sacrifice of what? A lamb. So you keep that in your mind, a sacrifice of the lamb. And that doesn't that begin to ring in your mind about terms in the New Testament? Jesus, the lamb of God, sacrificed for many. So we're bringing these together. So I want to insert here something out of Exodus 40 right at the end a little bit that's really important to understand about this tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. After the tabernacle was put together, God created this cloud that settled over the tent. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if the cloud did not move, was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it moved. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the takeaway for me from that is to talk about the absolute amazingness of God being willing to come down to man and meet him in the Holy of Holies. Because that has implications for us later as we look into what Christ has done and what he says. That they all could see it. I mean, I would love to have a cloud or a pillar of fire to follow around every day with God showing me what to do. Wouldn't that be amazing? But no, we got to do it by faith. So, nevertheless, we have the Spirit which functions in a way as the cloud and the fire, if we, if we could say that. All right, so let's look at the next picture as we're thinking forward. So I wanted to uh, give you the idea, for those of you that maybe have never thought about this or knew this, that inside the tent, um, this is what was going on. There's two parts. This is the, the red wall here is a, is a veil. It's a curtain that separates the two. The priest will come in this way, and here's, here's showbread, it's called. Here's unleavened bread. There's a lamp over there, lots of symbolism. And only the high priest was permitted to go in behind this once a year and take the sacrifice and offer it up before the Lord one time. So it's interesting if you think practically about this, how did this look? Because they tore the thing down and carried it around. So, obviously, they weren't, it wasn't so holy that they were going to die, except for the ark. They had to carry the ark in a certain way, where there'd be problems. But it's because it's about God's presence. When God was present in the cloud or in the fire, when it was set up and the cloud would come down, then no one could go in there. When the cloud lifted, they would take it down and move it. But at this, in this picture, we see a sacrifice being burned, and only the high priest was to go in there. And if you didn't know, it was so dangerous for him in there, they put a little rope on his ankle, and they put a little bell on him that he could hear him dingle, dingle, dingle while he's in there. Because if the bell stopped, that might mean he died, and they'd pull the rope and pull him out. We don't ever have any indication that happened. But the point of that is to tell you how serious a matter it is to go into God's presence and only a few people could ever do it. There's a veil there. We didn't go in there ever, you and me. We're the, we're the common folk. We're outside. If we're lucky, we're not in a leper camp somewhere. So this is how it functioned. And all of this that we read in the upper room is harking back to all of this practice and all of the things that undergird the Hebrews' history. We always got to have a picture, of course. Jesus with his disciples, what it must have been like. Jesus is reclining with them. He knows what's going on. And I couldn't actually find a lot of foot washing in the Old Testament in particular. There's one example of David and Abigail when she washed David's feet. Um, but it, 
Mostly we know of it in the New Testament that it was common when I come to visit you in your house, I come by, I've got sandals on, I come in and if there were servants, the servants would prepare water and a towel for you to wash your feet um, because it was just needed, it was necessary. In that respect, it wasn't a religious ritual, but it was a practical issue. But Jesus takes that, which they all understood, that they all kind of did on a day-to-day -day basis as hospitality, and he elevates it to a whole different thing with his disciples. And inasmuch as people practice foot washing today, I think that's fine. But the point of it is it symbolizes something deeper um, about an attitude of humility and serving. It might interest you to know that Eva and I actually, the night before the day of our wedding, the evening, we were with our parents only, and we had a little foot washing service to symbolize our commitment of service to each other. And it was actually quite moving. At that time, we were, you know, that's something we kind of did, but it was quite a moving experience for us. And it's been good for me to think about that, the commitment I made back those many decades ago to serve my wife utterly and to, quote, wash her feet in service and love. And I'm not saying if you don't do that, there's something wrong with you. Anybody guess what this is? The temple, right. The terms get a little confusing in use sometimes. So I usually use the term tabernacle for the Old Testament. The temple is for these structures, and this is obviously a mock-up. That doesn't exist today like that. Um, but this is pretty much what Jesus saw and was around at the time that he was with us. And this is what was going on in Jerusalem. Everything was focused on this place. And this is the outer court. And actually, if you were a Gentile, you could, some Gentiles could actually go in the outer court. But mostly, if you're a Gentile, you're on the outs. And then you begin to move inside, basically the same setup of what the temple was. I mean, it's really remarkable. This went on for how many centuries? Many, many centuries. I even gave you a little detailed thing here to show you the same thing of that particular temple. It's a little hard to see, but it's the same concept where you have the Holy of Holies and then you have the veil. And that's going to be important to kind of have that picture in your mind because something happens literally in that temple at the time of Christ. That's really important symbolically. And here's another kind of a picture to show you, to give you a visual of that veil that's blocking all the Levites and all the priests cannot go in there, only the high priest. And that existed in this night that Jesus was going to be betrayed. This is kind of what it was like. Do I have another slide on there? I think I have one more. What does that represent? We'll jump ahead for a minute. The veil is torn, all right? The veil is torn, and not only torn, what's unique about how it was torn? 
from the top to the bottom. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. So I'm going to go back to Luke. So back in Luke chapter 22, verse 17, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question each other about who that was. So here's Jesus. I think we can safely assume he washed Judas's feet knowing he was going to betray him. And he served him communion. But he also recognized what was about to happen. And I think this is a, a side lesson for us in about how we deal with people that we don't get along with or people that have harmed us in some ways. If Jesus can reach out to Judas, he can certainly, we can certainly reach out to some people that maybe we think we can't. But anyway, so kind of, I want to kind of bring it, bring it down now um, a little bit and, and talk about all this march toward this night with Christ. And I don't have the passage, maybe somebody can help me, where the passage talks about when the veil was torn in two. I need, I need that passage to go forward here. Luke. Luke 23. 44. So Jesus is hanging on the cross in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light had failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So basically what we have happening here in this symbolism is what? We did not have access to the Father, technically, until this point. It was the high priest. It was someone else who stood before God on our behalf. With the death of Christ, the veil, the symbolism of that veil tearing, God was saying, because it was from the top, no man could tear it, if I need to point that out. God was saying, we all now have access to the Father by the death of Christ on the cross. The Lamb of God was slain, His blood was shed, as was every lamb for centuries, in the place of the people's sin, for the people's sin. But now a more perfect way had come, and Jesus said, it's a new covenant. The old covenant was the laws and the rules and the sacrificial system. But Jesus said Himself, it's a new covenant. 
that I'm bringing through his death. The veil was rent. We have access now. And I think the reason I'm drawing this together is because we have the example of Christ in service, in foot washing and humility. And before, we didn't have that ability because we didn't have the spirit of Christ within us to really do it. We can do kind things for people, but to really serve in humility in meaningful ways, I believe takes the spirit of God, especially to do it for a long period of time. But we are now empowered to love as Christ loves, to serve as Christ serve in humility to the point of, quote, washing others' feet, doing things that seem perhaps undesirable, doing things that seem hard or demeaning, perhaps. We can do those things. And we're actually asked to do those things as we walk in our relationship with Christ. So what I want us to do today during our communion service is I want us to go beyond a little bit thinking about my relationship with Christ. Is it right? Is it right with those around me? We do that. But I want us to think about where do I stand in my attitude of serving God deeply and meaningfully in the lives of others, even if it's just your own children at home or your elderly parents or a coworker that you've been thinking about at work. Some way that God has designed us to humbly and deeply serve other people that is reminiscent of Jesus on his knees washing the disciples' feet at the Passover, knowing he's going to his death. To the last minute, Jesus is loving his own. And I pray that to our last minute, we can love people in a way that mirrors Christ's commitment and dedication to them in spite of being betrayed, in spite of being misused, in spite of being denied. He loved them to the end and he loves you and I to the very end. And I want us to think about how we might turn that great gift that he's allowed us in the temple. He's allowed us in the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. Every one of us. Nobody's any better than another. We all have that access now. And this is the gospel. This is how we can explain the gospel to people in very simple terms. We now have access when we did not before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the powerful picture of your son serving those that he loved those that he called up till the final minutes before he died and suffered so much for us. Lord, I pray today that as we partake of the communion elements that you would help us to be mindful of that deep heart of servanthood, of humility that will enable us to do some of the things that I know we're called to do, but sometimes we find difficult to do. So I pray now, Lord, that your presence would be with us and that we might meaningful find your voice in this hour. Amen.